I've just come in from the field outside where we've had an outdoor service this morning. And so I'm coming into the auditorium for the Baptist Temple Hour and for the live stream to speak to you folks. We sure don't want to slight you. And yet there was no way we could film the Baptist Temple Hour from out on the soccer field where I have just come. We had a wonderful, wonderful attendance. Many, many hundreds and hundreds of people. I don't know the attendance. Maybe over a thousand. I'm not sure. But we had, uh, for this, what we're going through right now, I was so thrilled to see so many people. Now today, I would like to talk to you about the threats that we're facing and the gospel. The threats that we are now facing and the gospel. I began by thinking about a man named John Newton. He was an old slave trader, as wicked a man as probably lived at that time. He referred to himself as a wretch, the wretch in the song. Amazing Grace was a reference to himself, John Newton. He had gotten involved in the slave trade business. He was in a shipwreck that wrecked off of Africa, and he floated into shore, and some of the natives uh, captured him, and he became a slave, the slave trader who became a slave. He ultimately escaped from there, came back to England. In due course of time, this wicked wretch came to know Christ as his Savior, and John Newton became a preacher. And he wrote many, many hymns, one of them being Amazing Grace that every one of you know. Now, one of the lines from that hymn is, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Think of the words of that. Slow down and contemplate it with me. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I've already come the testimony of John Newton. You know, someday you'll look back on this time of going through this virus, and you will say, through many dangers, toils, and snares, and threats, and perils, and problems that were associated with that time in my life. And you'll look back on it, and I hope you'll be able to look back on it and say, the Lord brought me through it, and He brought me through it safely. We are going through a period of dangers and snares and threats and perils. The Bible refers to it as perilous times, perilous times. The word perilous means dangerous times. It is dangerous. You go into a store or you walk out on the field where I just preached. People have on their mask. Uh, it's a dangerous time for us. And for the last three months or so, the focus of the entire world has been on a virus, something that none of us, unless you're a researcher in a laboratory with a high-powered microscope, none of us watching this program has ever even seen this invisible threat that we are facing today. They tell me that the COVID-19 virus is a member of a family of viruses. There are many brothers and sisters in this family, the coronavirus family has SARS. It had the H1N1 or the swine flu. It had the bird flu. It had MERS, M-E-R-S, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. 
All of these seem to affect our upper respiratory or our respiratory system from the lungs all the way up through the sinuses. And so COVID-19 is one of several, but it's been one of the most virulent, and we see people dying every day. On my way here to walk from the soccer field to the auditorium, I was talking to a nurse. She works in a nursing home, and she said, uh, we've lost eight of our patients due to this virus so far. And she was talking about what a horrible thing it was. I don't need to elaborate on it. You know that COVID-19, this pandemic is real. It is a serious threat to every single person. We know that you've heard the news. In South Carolina, there are 8,661 infections as of this morning. 380 of our citizens have passed away because of it. Florence County has 505 infections right now that we know of. There are many that we wouldn't know about. And we've had 27 of our people die. Florence County is third in the state. It shouldn't be. By population, there are other counties in our state that have more population. But we have a higher per capita infection rate than many of the larger counties. And so we have Richmond and Greenville County. And third, we have Florence County. We know that, it is that the most vulnerable people to this virus are the elderly and especially elderly people who have other conditions. They refer to them as underlying conditions. At first, the news came out about this, and it was in China, and we heard about it far away. And then it began in Europe, and we heard about the carnage in Italy and then in Spain, and then it came to our shores. It started out in Washington State in a nursing home, and people were dying, and they couldn't seem to, to be able to squash it, to stamp it out. And then the experts got on television, and they really confused us. They said scientists from the National Institutes of Health and the CDC they were saying, this is going to be the worst thing that's ever happened to America. Up to 2.2 million people are going to die based on our models, they said every time. Unless we mitigate this and something really drastic, unless drastic measures are taken, we're going to see up to 2.2 million people pass away. We found out later they were using an English model by a man named Neil Ferguson, who has since become a discredited epidemiologist. In 2002, this same man who created the model called the Imperial College Model from England, he predicted there would be 150,000 deaths from the mad cow disease. 177 actually died. He predicted 150 million deaths from the bird flu in 2005, and less than 1,000 died. He said that in the coronavirus epidemic here, in Sweden, he said up to 100,000 people will die by the 1st of June. Actually, Sweden has peaked, and 2,854 people have died so this man's modeling was so far-fetched, and he had made these mistakes over and over and over. Why did we listen to him? 
And of course, we, when a fellow says he's a, a doctor and he's an epidemiologist and he throws around big words like that, we tend to be impressed. And when the word science is brought in, we think, oh boy, science is always accurate. In this case, it wasn't, and it always isn't. Why did we use a model by a man that's been wrong so often? The man since has been thoroughly discredited. He was telling all of England to shelter in place, and they found out he was having an affair with a married woman. And so he's lost his credibility in a number of fronts. Now, we, we don't know who to believe, is my point. That's created confusion. So we know some about this virus, but there's so many questions that we don't seem to have any answers for. In fact, even Dr. Deborah Burks, who is on the White House Coronavirus Task Force, said, quote, there is nothing about the CDC that I can trust, end of quote. She believes that the number of cases and the number of deaths are inflated. Five funeral directors in Brooklyn, New York, made a statement, and they said, we don't know what's going on, but every nursing home death that we have had come to our funeral homes, the bodies have come here. We've noticed the death certificate says COVID. And some of these people, we don't think died from COVID. So are the figures accurate? We don't know. We have reason to think they may not be. Now, my point is this. We're facing a real and a serious threat. And yet there's a certain amount of confusion. We don't, we don't know how great is the threat. We don't we don't know how to respond. What we do know is that this has cost us many things. It's cost us the things that most enrich our lives and bring joy to us. Family gatherings, difficult. We have been, our family's been together one time and we sat at different tables and spaced apart and uh, tried to do the best we could to be safe because one of my grandchildren could be carrying the virus and, and no symptoms. I could be carrying it to them and, no, and not have symptoms. So even family gatherings are difficult. Church services, we've not been able to have them. Today was our first Sunday gathering together as a church in uh, two months and a half now. We can't have weddings we can't have vacations or we're reluctant or we don't know how to have them. Our graduation exercises have had to be so severely modified. I feel sorry for our seniors. They haven't got to experience that, that part of school life that we all look forward to with our junior seniors and our graduations and the parties and the social life that accompanied it. And then the sports are relatively going this afternoon over in Darlington. They'll race, but the, fan, the stands will be empty. And the Major League Baseball and has canceled its schedule for the summer so far. Even funerals are affected. We can't even grieve in the normal way. So this is costing us in so many ways. This is a real and serious threat to the whole world, not just to America. But there's been another threat that's come along is just as great, or in some ways it may have even a longer-lasting effect. Now, of course, where there's a family, you've lost a loved one, your life has changed forever, of course. 
But to most people, to the people who have not lost a loved one, the economic threat may be a greater threat than even the virus itself. And it's because in many cases, we believed a false report on the number of potential deaths. And so our government, in the interest of safety, just slammed the door on all business. We just shut down every business virtually in the whole country for a period of time. And then we started opening the businesses, but, you know, even that was confusing. Why would uh, Walmart be open, and why would the mom and pop that had fewer people in it, why would they be open? And then the whole thing just breathed of so much unfairness, and what is an essential business, and what is a, a non-essential business? And the liquor stores and abortion clinics are open, but the churches can't have services. And so we have all kinds of nuances and wrinkles on this thing that, again, it's very confusing. One fact is, though, we've lost over 20 million jobs in April alone. Our unemployment rate now stands at 15%, and many economists, in fact, our most conservative economists, believe the unemployment rate could go as high as 22 to 25%. Were that to happen, you see, that would put us at depression level, depression level unemployment uh, statistics. And here's the one that I think most impacts me. This past week, the Wall Street Journal said one, over 100,000 small businesses have closed their doors never to open again. Over 100,000 small businesses have closed their doors never to open again. In every one of those, that's a heartbreak. That's a tragedy. A man, maybe a man and a woman, a couple of families or whatever put their life savings together, took out their retirement dollars, sacrificed everything they had to start that business and was going so well and they were prospering. And then in one day, they shut it down and they couldn't open it and now they've lost it all. Through many dangers, toils and snares, perilous times, threats, difficulties, but even greater than the virus, in my opinion, and greater than the loss of businesses to me is the threat to our personal liberties. I'm really concerned about our country today. I guess this is a warning that I wish everyone would listen to. You see, very few people are talking about the threat to our personal liberties. And I think liberties have been lost due to well-meaning even efforts to protect people. But I'm not sure when those liberties will come back. I'm not sure if things have not changed that will literally haunt us in the decades ahead. John Locke was a British economist and an intellectual. John Locke wrote a book that was really the intellectual basis for the Constitution. The founders all were familiar with John Locke. His writings had more influence on those founding fathers than any other person. And John Locke talked a lot about natural rights. 
natural rights. He meant by natural rights, God-given rights, the rights that we have simply by being human, rights that nature or God gives to us as persons made in his image. John Locke defined natural rights as primarily life, the sacredness of life itself, that I have a right to live until God ends my life. I have a right to liberty, to come and to go, to not be imprisoned even in my own home, a a right to choose to go and to do and to act as long as I am a law-abiding citizen. And then the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence talked about the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as natural rights. But actually, John Locke wrote life, liberty, and property, meaning we have a right to own personal property and we have a right to use it as we wish. Now, when COVID came along and, and these broken models, these false models became known in America, there was a great panic And well-meaning people, I'm sure, politicians, shut down the businesses and really just shut down the whole country. But in doing it, you see, they infringed on rights, and we were willing to go along with that because we thought of this imminent danger to all of us. But now it's going on for two months plus. And in California, in Los Angeles County, they've said, we're locking down the whole county until the end of July. And people in Michigan, it, it is the, 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 the governor there, a woman, she won't allow people to go out of their homes and mow their own yards, which nobody's going to get COVID mowing your yard. And she won't let the hardware store sell you seeds to plant a garden. At the same time, the headlines are saying, we could have a food shortage. Your garden may be the most important thing you could have. And so... That's an infringement on John Locke's natural rights, his, his, his right to property, his right to freedom. And then when it comes to the churches, of course, we were asked in South Carolina, but in other states, they weren't asked. They were mandated. They were told to shut down. That governor up in Virginia and uh, de Blasio in New York and and Cuomo in New York, and this woman out here in Michigan, and the governor, the fellow down there in Illinois. I mean, they shut the churches down. You can't have more than 10 people assemble anywhere, anytime in the state because of the fear of this thing. And even those 10 people have to be spaced apart, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, perhaps, they're, they're, perhaps, and I don't know, I'm not sure about this, because I'm afraid we might have unleashed some tyrants. On the other hand, They may have been well-meaning, but people can't stay locked up in their homes forever. And and our economy is is melting down by the day. And in our Constitution, at the end of the Constitution, the founders put in the amendments. And the point of the amendments was to give special protection to those natural rights. And so we have there the First Amendment, which guarantees the freedom of worship, and to assemble, and the press, the freedom to to write about the news of the day. And so we have these freedoms guaranteed to us, and they're not suspended because we have a crisis. Now, 
in the spirit of goodwill and being a good neighbor and the golden rule and common sense, we're willing to suspend some of these rights for a while. But what we're doing in America now is going so far, and I just, I'm so afraid. We might never get some of those rights back, and especially what it's done to our churches. As I said today, our church assembled on a ball field. We, we don't mind that because it's much, much safer outside. And there are so many problems about coming inside. Uh, we would have to have, if we had the normal attendance we used to have many times, we'd have to have four services to accommodate it. And that becomes s such a problem. So my point is, this has affected us. It's not only the virus itself that has made people ill and, and taken the lives of people, but what it's done to our economy, what it's done to our social traditions, graduations, weddings, so on, and what it's done to our churches. By the way, a little shout out to our governor. I'm glad I live in South Carolina, not Illinois or Michigan or New York, because in those places, uh, the governor first came out and he said, we don't want people to assemble more than 100 and then 50 and then not more than 10 for a brief period of time. But the governor in his first news conference said this, I can't speak for other governors, but this governor is not going to intrude on the First Amendment. It's an absolute right. And a few minutes later, by the way, he said, and I'm not going to intrude on the Second Amendment. You're going to be able to continue to buy a gun to protect yourself. Now, he requested of the churches. He didn't order it. He didn't mandate it. He requested that we would close until the heat of this thing passed and we'd be able to reopen. And he said, but I'd like for you to observe the, a good neighbor policy. I'd like for you to do common sense, the common sense things. And don't meet for a, for a period of time. And then when you begin to meet, observe the social distancing and sanitize the building and things like that. And I appreciate the freedoms that we have in South Carolina, but we've lost freedoms nationally and perhaps even in our state that I'm not familiar with. And I know that you start down that slippery slope and sometimes you can never climb back up it. Some good news for those of you who live in North Carolina, a federal judge yesterday or day before yesterday now in North Carolina ruled in favor of the church's reopening. And he did that because a man that you hear right here at our church, David Gibbs, a, a, a prominent Christian attorney and a patriot, he took the case before the federal judge up in North Carolina, and the judge says, uh, this, you, you, can't, you can't keep these churches closed for an indefinite period of time. Now, I've told you about all these serious threats, but there's one that's even more a threat. And that's where I put on my garb as a pastor again, and I hold my Bible because throughout this Bible, it tells me a threat to my personal liberty. It's the problem, the threat, the peril of sin and of evil. Like COVID-19, sin, you see, is universal in its scope. There are COVID cases now, I believe, in 180 of the 200 countries of the world. I can tell you, all 200 countries have a sin problem. It's universal in scope. It affects every nation. 
It affects every single person. Sin originated in the heart of Satan. Somebody said, where did sin come from? Sin came from the rebellion, the anti-God spirit, the spirit of independence from God in the heart of the devil himself. You remember before time even began, he led a rebellion against God with the angels of heaven. And then when Adam and Eve were created, Satan came to them, and he first entered into the human race when Adam and Eve disobeyed God at his temptation and at at his behest. And sin has been passed down through the stream of the bloodline, literally. The DNA of the human race, sin has been passed down to every child of Adam and Eve. If you are human, like myself, you know what it is to sin. It's not so much what we do. We tend to think in terms of sin as breaking the Ten Commandments, doing this, doing that. The greater problem with sin is not what we do, it's what we are. It's our very nature to rebel, to chaff against God's word and God's truth. To go our own way, as Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone our own way. That's what sin is, going my way instead of following the commands of the Lord. Sin carries a death penalty. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And now we see an explosion of evil that I believe has come about as COVID-19 has put a strain. It's put pressure, if you will, upon people as they've been quarantined and, and their freedom's limited and they can't go out. For example, there's been a huge explosion, I'm told, of child abuse of mistreatment of little children. Tempers flare because people are tired of being inside and not being able to do what they want. Domestic abuse, spouses beating up on each other and pushing each other around, abusing one another. COVID doesn't cause that. It didn't cause that. It simply revealed what was already in the human heart. Hoarding. We hear people talk about hoarding. You know how you spell hoarding? You spell it S-E-L-F-I-S-H, selfish. I'm going to take care of myself at the expense of other people not being able to have a roll of toilet paper or a hand sanitizer or a, a, a food item. And we sin. Our sinful nature makes us inherently selfish. We care about ourselves. We don't care if what we want to do causes other people to be deprived or to suffer. And then there's been an explosion in those sins that people would do in their homes alone. Drunkenness, pornography, drug use, suicide even, rage, depression, and despair. So that problem comes about as a result of these other problems. We have this pandemic. 
it takes away our enjoyment and enrichment in life through all the things that we like to do. Our economy is shut down, and it affects us economically. And then government, whether well-meaning or intentional, begins to infringe upon our rights as human beings, and we resent it. There's a great amount of resentment, a great amount of, of people that are just ready to just throw off restraint, and that's not a healthy thing. And then because of our nature being what it is, sin explodes in the culture. Boy, I've taken you from the bottom of the sea, the depths <laughs> of problems, but let's surface now. Let's go into the sunlight and just like the sun breaking through the clouds on a cloudy day and a beautiful ray of light comes through, so the gospel. And I have my Bible open to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. It says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Mark says that, and the title above says the gospel according to St. Mark. If I went back one book, it would say the gospel according to St. Matthew. I move forward one book, the gospel according to Luke, and then the gospel according to John. Each of them refers to itself, four books, as the gospel of somebody who wrote it. The gospel here, he says, though, is of Jesus Christ. The title says it's according to Mark, but he says the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each of these books is a biography, if you will, a, an account of the life of Jesus Christ. They're not written in chronological order particularly. They pick the events that the Holy Spirit led the authors to put down. And they give us an account, a, an inerrant account, a perfect and infallible account of the life and times of Jesus Christ. Now, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 over here. The Apostle Paul gives us a sort of shorthand version. The Apostle Paul gives us a basic outline of the gospel. And what is that? He says the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, meaning as it was predicted in the Old Testament, that He was buried and that He rose again according to the Scriptures because his resurrection was a fulfillment of prophecy. All he's doing is giving us an outline there. I don't want you to think that the gospel is that Christ died, he was buried, and rose again for our sins, and that's all there is to it. That is what it is. That's the heart of it. That's the kernel. That's the presentation we use when we witness to people. We say, I, I shared the gospel with a person. We didn't have time to tell them everything about the life of Christ. We, we got right to the heart, the kernel, the nut of it, if you will. But the gospel is far broader than just that Christ died on the cross and, was, and resurrected. You see, the gospel in its broadest sense is the entire Bible. If you, if you press me for a kind of technical definition of the gospel, I would say to you something like this. The gospel is the account of God's search for man who was estranged from him by his sin, and the gospel is the story of his plan of redeeming us back to him. The gospel is how the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection paid off our sin debt, 
so that we could avoid the just and righteous wrath of God upon our sins. That's the gospel. The good news that God is on a search mission, and he searched, and he found a way through the death of Christ and the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He found a way to redeem us, and those who put their faith in him become a redeemed people, a people for his name, a people who he has given the power to live for him to. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2 and verse 14, there's a verse there that's very interesting because I think right now people are afraid, and they're afraid of dying. They're thinking about dying. What if I get that virus, and I'm one of that less than 1% that I pass away? What if that were to happen to me? And, and the, the only benefit of this thing that I can think of is that it has made men think about their relationship to God and where they stand with Him on their salvation. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, you read these words. Through death, He, referring to Jesus, through Jesus' death, He might destroy Him. That refers to the devil. So through the death of Jesus, He might destroy the devil who through fear of death kept us subject in bondage to him all of our lifetime. What is it saying? That the devil uses the fear of death to frighten people and that Jesus Christ through his death on the cross freed us from that. Do we fear death as human beings naturally speaking? Of course. That's part of the survival instinct that God put within us. On the other hand, I know that if this takes me, Jesus Christ died on the cross, washed that cross down with his blood, that Bill Monroe's sins could be paid for. And there's a lot of confusion I have about what's going on in the world, as I've already stated. I don't know who to believe but I believe God's Word, and I know that Christ paid for my sins. I know I believe that. I'm staking my heart and my life on that for eternity. And if I die, and whenever that is, I know that thy blessed Lord who loved me so much that He died for me, that He's going to be there, and He's going to take me home to be with Him forever. He promised me that. And ladies and gentlemen, He's not a liar. In these perilous times, you Christians out there, don't let this moment of opportunity pass. I was talking on the phone with a nurse yesterday, a nurse who has been infected by that virus herself and is now quarantined, and so I called her to pray with her. And she said to me, Pastor, I'll tell you one thing. I've never seen this before. Up until now, I would, talk, I would try to witness to patients, and I would talk to them. And many times they were very cold and distant. No, I don't want to talk about it, or they just wouldn't respond. She says, right now, people are open. People are listening. She said, I quote her, my patients are hungry to talk to me. They're afraid. Well, my friend, Jesus died, so you wouldn't have to be afraid. The gospel is the good news that you can be free from the fear of death. 
the gospel overcomes my discouragement for it's good news. The gospel is unchanging truth that we have as believers in a world of lies where we don't know who to believe. The gospel is peace in a world of turmoil where there is so much disagreement and back and forth. The gospel is my strength when I feel weak and I go back in my mind and I think about the cross and that Jesus went on and sweat drops of blood for me and he strengthens me with that thought. The gospel is my assurance when I am in doubt. The gospel is the compass that I can look at when I'm confused to know the direction for life. The gospel is money in the bank to those who are poor. And the gospel is a lifeline that God has thrown out to us who are drowning in despair and in darkness today. The gospel is a lighthouse to those who are lost on the sea of, of life. And the gospel is hope in a world today that is filled with despair. Oh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, all that Jesus ever did, the story of how God came on a search mission to find unsaved people who would respond to him and to redeem them and pay their sin debt for them through the grace and mercy of his son. An old preacher said, when I was 30, I thought there was nothing better than the gospel. When I was 40, there was nothing as good as the gospel. When I became 50, he said, I discovered there was nothing compared to the gospel. But now that I'm past 60, there's nothing but the gospel. And I tell you that today. And that's the message I want you to proclaim if you know the Lord Jesus and that's the message I want you to accept and believe if you don't know him as your Savior. Let me close with a word of prayer. If you're not a Christian today, would you pray this prayer with me right now as I lead you in it? Just a brief prayer, but say it. If you can, say it audibly right there in your home, wherever you are. Pray this prayer with sincerity and humility to the Lord. Dear Lord, I realize I'm a sinner. I don't deserve anything from you. I thank you that you sent your son to die for me. Thank you for paying my debt. I repent of my sins. I'm ready to turn from them. I receive Christ as my Savior and Lord. I give you my life my heart, all that I am. Save me, O Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Here we are, so often filled with heartache. So many times we weep when loved ones pass. But there's a place that and someday it will be my home at last when you 
心。